everybody, it's David Creek. I want to thank you for listening to the Westchester Church Podcast. We're coming to you from the Philadelphia area. And you can check out our website at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. As we continue where we left off, and we hear the words of the very next letter read aloud to us. If there were such a thing as music playing in the background as we read the words of Jesus to his church, this would be a very ominous soundtrack. Just something that lets you know that there's something very dark, very sinister, very infernal that is going on in this place. Revelation chapter 2, and starting in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum writes, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Well, last week, one of the revelations to the church at Smyrna was that the slanderers of that church Jesus refers to as a synagogue of Satan that was masquerading as a synagogue of light. And now here at the church in Pergamum, Jesus is is removing all of the layers, and the veil comes crashing down. And Jesus says to his people, I know where you dwell. I know where you are living. It is where Satan's throne is. And you know, in this age, what what usually went on any time that you had a person seated upon a throne? They were reigning and Caesaring. People were genuflecting and licking their boots in obeisance, falling over one another, trying to outdo the other and showing reverence and complete submission to whoever was on that throne. But more than anything, what you had when, whenever a person was seated upon a throne is that the person seated on the throne was the one who had been made king. And Jesus, with his all-seeing eye, reveals to the Christians in this house church that Satan is the king of Pergamum. And we see right from the jump of this text that this is where these poor Christians are living. In the movie Sicario, there is a scene where a convoy of operatives from the CIA are driving in these black SUVs, about half a dozen of them, and they descend upon Juarez in order to make a high-profile arrest. You've got helicopters buzzing in the sky. Mexican officers and federales are are, um, accompanying them with these huge rifles. And as, and as soon as this particular scene begins, there is, again, just very ominous music growling in the background. And then the camera pans to a nervous new trainee who's just kind of a nervous wreck. She's on her very first mission. And with a wry smile, a Sicario announces to her and to everybody else in the motorcade, Welcome to Juarez. And the statement is kind of a mystery to her at first. It's like, why would he say that? 
And yet then they make a turn in the SUV. And suddenly they see mutilated, naked corpses hanging upside down by their necks on the freeway overpass. And all of a sudden those words are instantaneously understood. So much so that you can taste welcome to Juarez and what that meant. And to any Christian who set foot in Pergamum, who witnessed the savage darkness that was there, they could have also been told, welcome to Pergamum. And you know, it just begs the question, what was there about Pergamum that would cause Jesus to say that is the throne of Satan? Well, Pergamum was the most prominent city of all of the, the cities of Asia Minor Jesus is writing to. It was elevated on a very high mountaintop where this massive Acropolis stood. And here's what I find most compelling about Pergamum in particular with relation to what Jesus has said. Is that when you stood far down below on the ground and you looked up at the Acropolis on the hilltop, it actually resembled, it looked like a giant throne just looking at you from up above. When you stood on this hill in the Acropolis, every direction that you looked, there was one religious shrine after another. There was the temple of Athena, the goddess of war and wisdom. Dionysus had a temple there. He was the god of wine and debauchery. You had this huge temple devoted to Zeus. It was four stories high. You can still see it in a museum in Berlin. They, they have the actual shrine to Zeus from this place. Zeus, of course, is, is in their culture the god of the sky, the god of all gods, a god's god to them. And at each particular shrine, it was not a suggestion. It was an expectation that you would sacrifice to these gods, that you would pray to them and that you would worship them. And that you would hope in them, put all of your trust in this world, in them as your divine protectors. And anybody who did not do this would be seen as the adversary of the state. And yet again, to anybody and everybody following Jesus, this presented all kinds of dilemmas, didn't it? I think as a case in point, whoever happened to get sick, you would have to go to the temple of a god called Asclepius. Asclepius, of course, had been the god of, of medicine and healing. It was kind of like going to the hospital. And yet in Pergamum, doctors weren't just merely doctors, but they were also priests of the cult of Asclepius. Which meant that whenever you happened to go to see a doctor, you would first have to confess out loud Asclepius, you are the divine Savior. And so have mercy and heal me, O Asclepius, my divine Savior. And yet if you happen to be a Christian, and you hold to the conviction that, no, Jesus Christ is my divine Savior and my healer, I mean, and you have a, a spouse who's dying of a disease. You have an infant who is horribly sick and is in dire need of a doctor right now, 
what do you do? I mean, what are you supposed to do? Welcome to Pergamum. And then I think about one last shrine that was on the Acropolis at Pergamum. It was the temple devoted to the worship of Caesar Augustus. Of course, Caesar Augustus had been the very first emperor of Rome. He reigned when Jesus had been born. And Augustus issued an edict that from now on, you are all to refer to me as Lord and as Savior. He issued an edict and and he legislated that everybody would be required by law to worship him. I know, very humble guy, right? See, this is why when Jesus famously asked for a coin, it was a coin bearing the words, Caesar Augustus is the divine son of God on it. And you know, in Revelation, Jesus never comes out and and outwardly says Rome is, is Satan. He never uses the word Rome. But he exposes the depravity of worshiping the idols and the emperors of empire. That's, in a sense, a large sense, what Revelation is about. I think what he's saying to his church here is that they think that they are praying to Zeus. They think that Dionysus is being honored by their drunken orgies. They think that they are worshiping Caesar Augustus and Roman civic patriotism. But really, what all of these people are doing is they are bowing down before the throne of Satan. And so you see, this is the unveiling. This is the revelation to the church at Pergamum. That whoever and whatever we are lavishing religious devotion towards, other than him, is us giving religious loyalty and devotion to Satan rather than to Jesus. We are bowing down before King Satan when we do that. Jesus is revealing that all of the sacrificial smoke rising from the altar of Zeus day and night, all of the shouts of praise coming there before the shrine of Augustus, Jesus is translating all of this noise and veneration as long live Satan. Long live Satan. Long live King Hasatan, our God. Welcome to Pergamum. You know, that's a very scary thought, isn't it? I know where you live, Jesus says, where Satan's throne is. And you know, when I read that, and the more that I learn about what was going on at Pergamum, the more it causes the hair on my arms to stand up. That's because I'm becoming increasingly convinced that Pergamum isn't some defunct city that no longer exists that we read about in Scripture. That you and I very well may be living in Pergamum. John writes in 1 John chapter 5 that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now that was true 2,000 years ago, and I believe that that is still true in the world of today. That the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And you know, we're living in a time when you can't go to a concert, you can't even go into a supermarket, maybe even in, in a church services sometimes, 
without the possibility of being caught in the crosshairs of a machine gun massacre, and suddenly finding yourself in a war zone, welcome to Pergamum. We're living in a society where abortion went from a rarity reserved for absolute medical emergencies to an expressway for any and every reason that a person cooks up. Welcome to Pergamum. Just one year ago, there was a billboard that went up on Interstate 27, Highway 27 in Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia. It bore the words of Isaiah 9, 6, which, which says about Jesus, for unto us a son is given. And yet next to those, those words about Jesus was a picture of a former U.S. president instead of Jesus saying clearly that this is prophesying about this former U.S. president. In other words, this guy is our Messiah. Welcome to Pergamum. We're just three weeks removed from books being distributed at a political rally. And the author Helgard Moeller writes in his book about how a former U.S. president is, quote, the son of man, the Christ. And it was not satire. He was saying clearly, this guy is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Welcome to Pergamum. And the more that I see these things happening, the more it's being made clear to me that this is not a drill anymore. This is happening right before our eyes in our age and our generation. Be careful. Be vigilant. Pay attention to what's going on and hold fast to Jesus Christ. Don't let that get its talons in your soul. Because after all, that was the third wilderness temptation for Jesus. After Satan had said, turn these stones into bread and leap from the top of the temple, as we may remember, his grand finale temptation to Jesus was the sin of Christian nationalism of enforced Christianity, where Satan shows Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world and they're, they're sparkling in all of their splendor. And the one who the whole world lies under the power of says to Jesus, I will give you all of these kingdoms right now. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, get away from me. And he said that for the same reason why he wouldn't let the Jews make him king by, by force later on in the Gospels. Why he said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's the same reason why the Roman goddess Roma, who personified the patriotic worship of the empire, who was always portrayed as being chaste and pure and elegant, is personified by John in Revelation chapter 17 as a drunken prostitute. And we wonder why John got exiled as a political prisoner on the island of Patmos. You see, when Jesus said no to that enticement, he is showing us 
That to say yes to Christian nationalism is to bow our knee before the throne and before the empire of Satan. Because as the theologian Brian Zahn puts it, when it comes to Christian nationalism, the Christian part is just a ruse. Because it's not about the Jesus, it's, it's about the power. And one of the most recurring messages from John in the book of Revelation to first century Christians is don't get too cozy with your empire. He's saying that you need to understand that the Roman Empire is not some cute, cuddly little lamb. It's a beast. It's an apex predator. And I just, you know, I read this and I wonder how. How can you live for Jesus in a place like Pergamum? Well, in the latter part of verse 13, Jesus commends his church, and he says this. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, but he says, but you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, and then he says it again, where Satan dwells. Now, when Jesus says, hold fast, that is, that is an expression in the original language meaning to latch on to something with every fiber of our existence and to not let go whatever you do. You know, this is not a scotch tape kind of hold where it quickly comes off, but, but this is a Gorilla Glue kind of hold. Anybody who's ever used Gorilla Glue, as soon as you put that on, you know that's going to stay for a very long time and, and so Jesus says that, that you have held fast to my name and to my faith. And he mentions a brother of ours whose name was Antipas. And even when Antipas had been living in a city where Satan's throne was, he held onto Jesus. He continued believing that Jesus rose from the dead. He confessed every single day that, that Jesus is my King and my Lord, and he did not let go of that confession. Well, the Roman governor, as all Roman governors did, he wielded the power of, get this, of a double-edged sword. And he took that double-edged sword, probably at the gladiator games, and he put Antipas to death because he held fast to Jesus Christ rather than to the empire. You see, this is how Jesus says hello to them. Jesus says, I am the one who has the double-edged sword. These are the words of him who has the double-edged sword. You see, he's speaking their language. And he's reminding them that, you know, actually all authority and power and majesty and preeminence actually belongs to me. Yes, Roman governors and Caesars may have the power of a double-edged sword in a physical sense. And yet Jesus, the word of God, he's got the words of life that will never pass away. He had the first word at the beginning of time, and he will have the last word at the beginning of, at the end of this age. And what do we know about the word that is in his mouth? It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It convicts us and it cuts us to the heart. 
Even when Antipas was put to death, he says that you held fast. And you have not denied my faith. And so he says that to their encouragement and to their blessing. And yet even though that is so, even though that is so, what we find in verse 14 is that this church is also sick with terminal spiritual cancer. You know, it's what we saw a few weeks ago with the church in Ephesus where, where that church had the cancer of not being a house that had love in it. And so in verse 14, what Jesus says to his church is this. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and to practice sexual immorality. So also you have some there who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And what Jesus is is revealing to these people and the diagnosis that he's presenting to them is the cancer of compromise, is the cyst of conformity away from the ways of Jesus Christ. This is when a Christian reaches the point where they're tired of living the Christian life. They grow so tired of looking unusual to the unbelieving, misunderstanding world around them. They're just so weary of being God's peculiar people where the fantasy of just blending in and and being just like everybody else is just too intoxicating for them to resist. And so Jesus says, rather than holding on tightly to Jesus Christ, they are holding to the ways of Balaam. Well, Balaam had been a prophet in the book of Numbers who we read about. His name means devourer of the people. I guess you could say Balaam is the Judas Iscariot of Old Testament scripture, maybe even more than that. And as the story goes, when Israel was just about to enter into the promised land after all of those those years of wandering, they camped next to the nation of Moab. Balak, who had been king of Moab, he meets with Balaam and he offers him a huge sum of money. He wants to conquer the Israelites. and And so what he says is this. He says, listen, Balaam. Why don't we get the most beautiful women in Moab to entice all of the men of Israel? And so that is what begins happening. Many of these men, by the way, are married, have children, have spouses, and they begin committing sexual immorality. And once their hearts have been stolen, then comes the last goal and, and um, destination as they bring them into the Baal's temple. And they begin worshiping Baal rather than God. And now Jesus is saying that there is a growing number of people in the church at Pergamum who have lost their ability to live counterculturally for Jesus Christ, and they are going the way of Balaam. Jesus also says that rather than holding fast to me, there, there are others who are holding to the, to the ideas of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans had been a sect in the first century. 
Nicolaitans is derived from the word Nike, which means, of course, conqueror of the people. And there's very little known about the Nicolaitans other than, than this. They claimed that they had a direct line to God and that God was giving them new revelations that no one else had ever heard. And surprise, surprise, all of these new so-called revelations completely had been contradicted by what God already said in the Scriptures. They were impressing on the minds of people something along the lines of this. They were saying that God's grace is so wonderful that, that listen, he's given us carte blanche to live however we wish to live. We can be faithful to Jesus, and we can sleep with as many people as we want to. We can worship Jesus, and then on Tuesday afternoon, we can worship Dionysus and get drunk in his temple. And to their credit, the church at Ephesus, that was not flying in that church. And yet that was not the case at Pergamum, though. Where the spirit of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans, it, it had infiltrated the church and it was conquering and devouring them. And there were many people going back to the pagan lifestyles that they had left behind when they chose to follow Christ. And so Jesus is saying that you have to address this cancer right now. And one of the saddest things about our world is that there is still no cure for most brands of cancer. Every single one of us has been impacted by cancer in some way. We've lost people we, we love so much to cancer, every one of us. And yet the good news is this morning is that even for this kind of spiritual cancer, Jesus is, is showing his church, for this kind of cancer, there is a cure. Where last Jesus says in verses 16 and 17, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. And so he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then he says, to the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name on it that no one knows except for the one who receives it. And so first of all, Jesus again uses the word repent. We spoke a few weeks ago about how many people have an adverse response to that word, and rightfully so, because it's been a word that has been... Um, a weapon of spiritual abuse for a lot of people. But used in its proper context and in appropriate ways, when, when God uses that word repent, in the Greek it means that we put on a brand new mind. In other words, that we begin to see things the way Jesus sees it. And it is a radical change of our character. And yet in the Hebrew, the idea of repentance is to simply get back on God's pathway. And for us to enter once again through the narrow gates and to walk on that unpopular road, and yet it leads to life. And so finally, Jesus says to those who overcome and hold fast, he says that I will give you the hidden manna. Now, I don't know the entirety of what this means. 
And yet I believe what Jesus is saying is that as the bread of life, I am saying to you, do not go after all of these idols and gods. I am the one who will feed you, who will nourish you, and who will empower you. Jesus also says to all of those who hold fast, he says that that I will give you a white stone with a new name written on it. And there's a um, a couple of possibilities here. In this age in courtrooms, if a person on trial had been condemned, all the jurors held up black stones. And yet when they were um, acquitted, though, it would be white stones that they would hold up. And yet also, if you wanted entrance inside a theater, rather than a ticket, you would be handed a white stone that had your name on it. I believe what Jesus is saying to his church here is that to all of those of you who are faithful, for all of those who remain faithful to me until the end, to all of those who overcome, He's saying that you are granted entrance. You are seated at my banquet of salvation where where there are no strangers and where everybody belongs. Remain faithful to me and you will be acquitted of all of your spiritual crimes. And so as we close this morning and as we offer the gospel invitation, there is a photograph, old black and white, image that that I'm sure every one of us have seen at some point or another. It's a picture from a 1936 German rally. Everybody's hands are in the posture of the Nazi salute, except for just one man. If you zoom in, there's one man who has his arms defiantly folded, and he's just standing there like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And he refuses to be swept away in that upstream of of all the stuff that was going on back then. And you know, in so many ways, as the disciples of Jesus Christ, this is what we have been called to do in a world where Satan's throne is. While all the rest of the world around us worships violence and power and sex and, and money and dictators, We are are those few who worship the Prince of Peace. We are a light shining in a dark city. Our very actions announcing to the world that there is such a better way to be human and there is such a better kingdom than the one that we are inhabiting. And you know, I believe that we can live in such a way and to such an extent doing that that even when we dwell amid the place where Satan's throne is, a darkened world can see Jesus in our words and see Jesus in our actions. And it will give a brand new, an entirely new, transcendent meaning to welcome to Pergamum. When they step into our gatherings, and when they see the way that we love people every single day of our life,